Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And today we have a very timely and important topic for you. We're chatting with Dr. Joan Donovan from Harvard's Shorenstein Center about disinformation online. In full disclosure, I also sit on the board of the Shorenstein Center. Dr. Donovan leads a field in examining internet and technology studies, online extremism, media manipulation, and disinformation campaigns. She'll teach us what it is and how to spot it. Let's get right to it. Dr. Joan Donovan is the Research Director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard. Dr. Donovan leads the Technology and Social Change Project, which explores how media manipulation is a means to control public conversation, derail democracy, and disrupt society. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Joan. Thank you for having me. So tell us just a little bit more about your journey. How did you get to where you are today? Well, I was born. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I'm a jokester. I should say, uh, you know, weirdly enough, I probably wouldn't be here if I didn't grow up uh, being a like young punker, hardcore kid growing up in Boston. And I say that because it's the first time I had been really enculturated to understand the ways in which racists operate. And within the hardcore punk subculture in the 90s, there were uh, gangs of racist skinheads who would bully young people, queer people, black people, anybody that they thought they should have power over, right? This idea of supremacy was something that uh, was almost second nature to them. Whereas there was another community of punkers that were uh still struggling to find our identities still struggling to figure out who we were but we knew (laughs) we knew what we weren't which were uh these oafs and over the years being in bands booking shows you learn how to build community you learn how to be in touch with one another you learn how to see uh and and listen to these dog whistles and so over the years i've always understood racism um, from the point of view of the communities that I am a part of. And as I um, started to get an education uh, over the years, it took me 10 years to do my undergrad. And so (laughs) 10 years, three colleges, like one degree, (laughs) right? Um, So, you know, I I just, I've always just been the kind of person that follows opportunities, follows my ambition, my ambitions, however light they might be at some points. Um, And so I found myself doing a PhD at the University of California in San Diego in sociology and science studies looking at, at this point, I was looking at communication infrastructure and thinking a lot about technology and how it brings people together. And the Occupy movement was happening around the same time. And I just thought to myself, well, what a weird world where there are people living in public parks, connected to other people living in public parks, caring about something internationally, the Egyptian revolution and all of these different uh, liberation movements, the idea that the 99% mattered, uh, that that poor people mattered. Um, I was just in it, I was interested in it. So I had made my dissertation about it and then um, bringing it full circle when I, was applying for postdocs and jobs in uh, 2014 and was getting ready to graduate, a small research group at UCLA at the Institute for Society and Genetics had asked for a postdoc. And I just thought to myself, oh, this would be an interesting place for me to land. I care a lot about mental illness. I care a lot about genetic and science issues. And I've done a lot of work on communities online. So how would I study how communities online think about science and technology? I thought this would be kind of fun. And I get there and my two um, mentors, Chris Kelty and Aaron Panofsky, we just start talking about white supremacists and how they understand genetics and how they understand genetic ancestry tests. And I just say to them, (laughs) you know, kind of nonchalantly, 
well, I know where they are online uh, for years. I've been keeping track uh, just so I don't end up getting hurt. Um, and so we launched a project at UCLA that became career defining for me because I was able to bring together my interest in technology and communication networks and bring that to bear on white supremacy and how they understand how white supremacists understand DNA. And at the same time that that was happening, Trump was rolling out his campaign. And through all of that, I watched uh, and wrote, you know, <laughs> I, I, I was ringing the alarm about the rise of the alt-right at that time and saying, hey, they look a lot like the Occupy movement. They're using a lot of the same technologies. They're networking in ways that are in public now. Usually white supremacists are shamed of the stigma associated with the label, unless of course they have a community like a bunch of skinheads that will welcome them in. And so I was saying there's something else here uh, and that's how I began studying media manipulation, disinformation, online extremism. And that's a long way around of saying, hi. <laughs> I, I love it. Hi. Oh, we did. We were so excited about this because now you spend your time studying the media. So can you tell us a little bit about the state of American media and where is trustworthy information coming from? <laughs> well, I can so, tell you where it's not coming from. Uh, <laughs> and that is <laughs> a lot of times the media. You know, we have a, um, a kind of slogan that we use in my research team that when you're talking about politics, you're really talking about media about politics. I don't, you know, maybe you all know what's happening inside the White House, but I certainly don't. <laughs> and uh, so for many people in this world, our only window into the circuits of power are the different ways in which we consume media. And for the last several years uh, on social media, there has just been a all out information war around how people should understand politics, how they should understand technology. And that has really corrupted the way in which people assess what counts as a fact. And I'm not talking in this like very postmodern, like, oh, everybody's wrong about something. It's all a matter of perspective. I mean, there's people who will argue with you that, you know, the earth is not round, right? That's, that's weird, right? Uh, you know, given all we know, <laughs> <laughs> about, uh, you know, the the circumference of, of the earth. And, and so there's something else happening here, which is to say that uh, social media has a different kind of effect on us as human beings. And so even when we are confronted with facts, uh, it might be the case that we are confronted or overwhelmed by so many other lies or uh, deceptions or uh, dangerous speculation that it becomes really hard to make actual concrete decisions, right? Like, do I wear a mask? Do I get a vaccine? Rather than asking the question, oh, like, do you believe in a truth or a fact, right? Like our research really tries to get down to the, the nitty gritty of, does the way people are receiving information online uh, or through the news impact the way they behave in the world? Is it mobilizing them like we saw on January 6th? Is it suggesting to them, hey, if you don't do something, this other horrible thing will happen. And then we see a bunch of people show up to the to the Capitol uh, because they believe their democracy is being stolen from them. And so when I start to think about facts, I just I just lower the temperature a little bit and I talk about timely, local, relevant, and accurate information. And that's the boring stuff. That's the stuff that you're not going to share, right? Uh, uh, you know, you turn on your TV and they say, oh, there's a snow emergency, right? You're not just running to your Twitter to be like, oh my God, guys, guess what? Snow emergency, right? Park your cars <laughs> on the other side of the street. And so that kind of information that is necessary and important is often not anything that's going to traffic at the virality or velocity 
of a well-placed lie. And unfortunately, in this state, in a day and age right now, people are starting to look to individuals, uh, very specific individuals, political leaders, podcasters, <laughs> YouTubers, to build those relationships. Uh, and in some instances, those people are journalists, but in many instances, they're not. And as a result, we, we do have a very long and hard won battle ahead of us to bring local journalism back into the shape it was prior to uh, the advent of social media. You're one of the leading voices in the country on disinformation campaigns. Can you share more about your work with the technology and social change project that you lead at Harvard? Yeah, so we do research. Uh, the most boring thing on the planet, usually, except in this field where we study media manipulation and disinformation, it's the day's news, right? We are on top of things that most people are not looking for patterns uh, around, but for us, we are very cognizant of the fact that the three biggest disinformation campaigns of 2020 were propagated by Steve Bannon, uh, including the Hunter Biden laptop fiasco is something that he was in the center of. The claim that COVID is a bioweapon he was in the center of, as well as the claim that the Dominion voting machines were flipping votes uh, because of these algorithms uh, in a supercomputer called Hammer and Scorecard, which of course memetically is supposed to make you think Hammer and Sickle. Um, and so we do all kinds of research on racialized disinformation. We do research on meme wars. We do research on network conspiracies. And most of that stuff we try to publish open access and, and available to everyone at mediamanipulation.org. One of the hardest things about being an academic is the reward structure, which is to say that my career professionally depends on me publishing these very esoteric articles that end up behind paywalls in very fancy academic peer-reviewed journals, but that's not where knowledge should live. And so for us, we had to make uh, essentially what is, you know, in geeky terms, a living textbook uh, that allows us to do the public education that we want, as well as to help journalism and newsrooms very quickly ascertain what kind of media manipulation tactics are happening in, in any given breaking news story. And uh, we also try to do, I think, you know, under um, the directorship of Nancy Gibbs, we try to be very forward facing with our work so that journalists um, from all backgrounds, not just the high profile newsrooms, understand uh, what's at stake when we allow disinformation to run rampant uh, across our media ecosystem. Well, as we're seeing, you know, the rise of media ecosystems, as you say, and social media is what I um, really think of. We just had Marnie Levine on, who is the VP at Facebook. And we have seen, especially over these past couple of election cycles, so much disinformation being shared on all social media platforms. But can you talk about the rise of disinformation that we're currently seeing? Yeah, so social media companies, you know, I, I, I hate to do this to you, but let's take a walk back in time <laughs> to when <laughs> FaceMash, <laughs> which is the prehistory of Facebook, social networking is different. So we arrive at social media after social networking really fails to produce a business model that makes anybody any money. There's not a lot of money in connectivity, which is what, um, you know, Friendster and MySpace used to do, unless you layer in a bunch of advertising around everything. And Facebook, the first iteration of the product itself was a, basically, you know, we're old enough to remember hot or not online, but it was just, you know, pictures of people that Mark Zuckerberg was going to school with at Harvard. And you could rate these women and it that was that was facebook and then over time they rolled it out so that it would be like a facebook which is the the freshman faces book that you would get if you entered a university in pre-digital era 
you just get this yearbook of you could look at people and say, oh, they look cool or, oh, that's a funny quote or whatnot. But it rolled out just for .edu email addresses. So Facebook was really about university folks getting to meet each other and being cool at school, right? How many friends can you get and and uh, how how can you flex on your wall, you know, in, in, uh, in no uncertain terms, but you wouldn't, you know, use hyperlinks and you wouldn't post pictures. And, um, but over time, as the business model started to develop around social media and it was starting and people, uh, were starting to realize that these networks could be used for content distribution. That is the networks themselves were the distributors of information. Uh, that's when you see the rise of social media and you start to see advertising and you start to see much more emphasis on, <laughs> you know, some of our best friends are social media experts, right? We'll help you with reputation management and we'll help you with getting your content in front of new audiences. All of that, all of that knowledge that is sort of tucked away in the advertising world, when that was turned into a political tool with the social media websites, suddenly something like YouTube, which was ostensibly a dating website, you were supposed to upload videos of you saying, hey, you know, this is my house. This is where I live. I like long walks on the beach. I got two cats, right? That's YouTube was like, that was what that was supposed to be. And instead, dissidents and all kinds of other people started uploading things to YouTube. And so it became this content distribution hub. And so they had to figure out how to monetize that. And Twitter too had a bunch of technologists on it who were like, hey guys, meet me in the mission. And it eventually turned into a hub for journalists because journalists realized, oh, I can cultivate an audience and then use them to distribute my uh, articles. And so that's a long way around of saying that these technologies were never built for timely, local, relevant, accurate content. They were never built for journalism. They were never built to withstand the kind of pressure that they're under now by foreign operatives, by domestic operatives, by political opportunists, by you know influencers that are just looking to make a cheap buck. Um, and now with the compounding factor of, of course, the pandemic, you have hoax, scams, grifts for every single thing you could imagine, including toilet paper, uh, circulating on these um, services. And so we're now at the point where the plane is flying and nobody has built an airport. And that's where we need to go with this moment is we need to actually now start to figure out how are we going to land this plane and, and do it safely. You touched on what is potentially one of the more dangerous misinformation campaigns right now, which is around vaccines. And so I was hoping since you are in the weeds every day, you can talk to us about what kind of campaigns you're seeing online right now. Oh, goodness. How much time do we have? We've got <laughs> the Cliff <laughs> Notes three version. Days. Uh, well, the Cliff Notes version is this. It really depends on who your friends are. And I say that because it's it, medical misinformation is different from political disinformation because a lot of people will share it because they care about you. And so if you go back to the beginning of the pandemic and there was this viral, almost like a chain letter saying that if you drink a little bit of water every 15 minutes, you won't get the Rona. And if you were to hold your breath for uh, 15 seconds, that's a way to self-test if you have coronavirus. So this little, these nuggets of wisdom were circulated across text messages. They were in screen shares. There were TikTok videos made about it because within it, it said that this was advice from Stanford. And what we often see with medical misinformation is that they will lean on uh, affiliations or lies about expertise in order to get people to share things. And sometimes it's just for the hoax or the chaos. Sometimes it's to plant a seed to try to get people to think that there's other ways to 
combat coronavirus rather than um, what we now have are vaccines. But we saw before we had vaccines, we had so much anti-vaccine medical misinformation that it was just incredibly hard to keep track of. But I call people's attention to it only because at this stage, you are going to see a lot of medical misinformation because everybody is trying to get people the newest, fastest, most important, you know, breaking news. And it's that moment that uh, especially around, you know, we're going to announce a new vaccine, then uh, the media manipulators, disinformers, anti-vaccination activists will jump into action and know, well, this is my moment. The other example, I'll give you one that's really important, um, and you can look at the research on mediamanipulation.org from Brandy Collins Dexter, is that we see medical misinformation targeting certain communities because of the way in which those communities have been grossly underserved by our medical establishment. And so she's written a bunch about the ways in which Black communities are going to be targeted by and have been targeted by medical misinformation related to COVID. And uh, there's a case study not in her report, but is important to know is, you know, when Hank Aaron, when Henry Aaron passed away, the very famous black baseball player, uh, we saw anti-vaxxers use that moment to address um, uh, vaccine hesitancy in the black community. And in that blog post uh, that Robert Kennedy Jr. had put together about uh, Hank Aaron's death, he essentially planted anti-vaccination themes in that community. And so he's since been banned from Instagram, um, but it's hard to tell if he's going to be banned from other platforms. And I just bring this all to your attention to realize that depending on who you are, what you follow, and how you take in information, you are going to see some of this. And the best way to address it in some instances, if it's coming from people you love and trust, isn't to blast them in replies and say, you're an idiot, but it's to pull them aside and say, hey, there's something else going on here. I don't know if you're aware of it. And uh, and then like, let the chips fall where they may. People need to discuss their fears about the vaccine that has to happen uh but the way that we discuss it of course has to be done with care and compassion and when we spot these opportunists of course we need to report them uh to the different platforms people to your point have been banned um, and had their content restricted especially around potentially inciting violence around the spread of disinformation what did you see as the role of these campaigns on organizing around the Capitol riot specifically? Oof. Um, so for many years, I have been studying online social movements. So I'm not unfamiliar with uh, anti-government groups, right? And so what has been really perplexing over the last four years of the Trump presidency is that Trump has modeled himself as an outsider, as a political outsider, as beyond the Republican Party, and as someone who cares about the common man and about giving the truth to the common man. And so if you look back, even before Trump became president, at the way in which he wielded conspiracy theories to gain popularity online, especially around birtherism, QAnon, uh, which is this conspiracy theory that suggests that this anonymous uh, person who is in the deep levels of the government is leaking information through this website, that QAnon and Trump were uh, like in conversation with each other about how they were going to put the enemies of democracy in jail, which included back in 2016, Hillary Clinton but since then has included, you know, every single person that has ever said a bad thing about Trump, but mostly, you know, Obama, Pelosi, VP Harris, President Biden. And January 6th is a very strange phenomenon uh, for researchers. One, because American exceptionalism around this idea that it can't happen here really impacted the potential for a police response that would have been 
in proportion to the threat. But as researchers, we were like chicken little screaming our heads off for months that the the anti-vaxxers are talking to the conspiracists are talking to the white supremacists are talking to the militias uh, are getting ready <laughs> to do something big around the election. And as we see the election results drag out for weeks and then months, uh, you start to feel this anticipation, this uh, something is coming, something bad is going to happen. And it did feel a lot like in the research world, the sky is falling and all we have are our hands to try to hold it up. I describe the feeling as, as um, trying to stop a tidal wave with my hands. Like you just kind of push into it and like let it hit you because we all knew that the way in which Trump was using social media was akin to the kind of authoritarians and fascists we have seen use social media in the past. That is to build uh, a fervor and a populism and an outrage that can be called in to action. And so when he called for a wild protest in December for January 6th, the gloves were off and all of these different kinds of folks started making plans, like literally plans like I live in Poughkeepsie, you're coming from here. Can you pick me up at this McDonald's on the side of this highway at this time, right? Like that level of planning. And for some of them, they knew that they were going to storm the Capitol. And for some of them, they were going because they hoped people would storm the Capitol. And when Trump was standing on the stage saying, I'm going with you, we're going to march to the Capitol now, all I could see in my eyes was a sea of blood. I do not know how there can be a shot fired inside the Capitol and that not turn into return fire. We are so lucky that Americans were not accustomed to like gunfire combat with police, but that like mindset you really only have it once after that, the next time this happens, it's going to be much worse. I, I can't tell you how absolutely lucky we are that it didn't turn into a firefight. I think you're right. And I remember on the day, even we were in the middle of filming when this was all taking place. And I thought to myself, this is the wildest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And I'm a combat vet. And so as you as someone who is a researcher who is so informed on this sort of disinformation and how it can lead to violence, you're seeing everything almost before we as just regular people would see it. What are some of the craziest things you're seeing online right now? Oh, goodness. <laughs> Do we have time? <laughs> uh, we have time, but I'm also like, I'm a little wary. So there's some stuff out there that like, in the medical misinformation realm, I am most wary of the stuff related to the vaccine because I am, you know, frankly, we saw a little bit of a beta test in front of Dodger Stadium where anti-vaccination activists realized that the only way they're going to get press attention and get the attention of the public is going to be good old fashioned protest and protest in front of a state capitol or protest in front of a a hospital, you know, those are different things. And protest in front of a mass vaccination site where medical folks are dealing with hazardous chemicals and, you know, you want that process to be as smooth and as transactional as it can be because you don't want to harm anybody. And even the protesters showing up, even if they're not obstructing traffic, are disruptive and 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 cause a lot of confusion. And once we see tactics like that work, though, tactics are um, they're mimetic in the sense that they are repeatable and we start to see them pop up in other places like, uh, you know, we've had, you know, a decade of online protests now. It's no surprise that the Occupy movement mimetically starts to be a bunch of people in different parks. Right. You'll see different flavors of protests. Um, Justice for Trayvon Martin, for instance, was a lot of highway shutdowns. And so 
protests tend to get um, tied into a tactic. And then the tactic works until it doesn't work, which is to say until the police figure out how to counter it. And right now, I don't know if we have a good enough plan in place uh, in order to deal with protests at mass vaccination sites. And so that's one of the things that is is freaking me out. I have one other one that is a little esoteric um, and involves the next iteration potentially of QAnon, which is to say that the World Economic Forum, you know these economists, they're always trying to spin something. And so they came out during the pandemic with this idea of, well, let's not think of the pandemic as this horrible thing. Maybe it's an opportunity for a great reset. And whoever decided that that was going to be the slogan didn't realize how the conspiracy theorists were going to hear that. Because, you know, while the economists are out here being like, well, we're going to have to reset the economy. And that means we're going to deal with carbon emissions and we're going to do this and that. And it's great. Yeah, great. Go on, do that. But what it he what the conspiracists in the fringe communities that I pay attention to here is they're going to kill us all. They're going to reset the planet and all white people are going to be taken off because they don't care about white people or and when, every time they say they of course they mean it's anti-semitic right of course they mean jewish people and so in the communities that i'm looking at that are using the hashtag the great reset it is like very anti-semitic talk uh very racist talk and then on the other hand you have influencers realizing that these people watch a ton of content online. And so you have folks like Russell Brand, for instance, who was making videos about the Great Reset. And of course, he's talking about the World Economic Forum stuff. He's not out here uh, spreading medical misinformation. But at the same time, it's now adding all of this um, energy and engagement on this hashtag, which is now starting to draw in opportunists, political operatives, and all kinds of different folks. And I imagine, depending upon the way the census rolls out um, next month or the month after, that the Great Reset is going to become a very public uh, conversation. And my hope is that these platform companies are looking at it, paying attention to it, and are minding uh especially on facebook the groups because i was in a group about the great reset that had maybe 600 people in it when i joined it and now it's up over twenty thousand. and in that group they're sharing an incredible amount of medical misinformation um and and anti-vaccination contents but facebook is not up to the challenge of monitoring and and providing community safety for the people on their platform that is fascinating. And you're you're talking about the fringe communities online and the people who are who are real people. But then there's bots. What exactly is a bot and how can you tell if you're interacting with a bot? <laughs> so uh, we've all interacted with bots online. And of course, yes, I'm talking about real people. But and say off foot of the New Georgia project is this great line, algorithms don't care about your analysis. That is to say all engagement is good engagement. Um, and so bots are often, you know, bots were developed by marketers. They were a way of making celebrities more popular. Of course, the uh, fake accounts like around, you know, listen, I watch <laughs> and I and I love the Kardashians, but they're just bot magnets, right? Like their whole social media operation is uh, a bit of smoke and mirrors. Um, mm. And I'm not talking about the eyeshadow in the in the makeup, part, <laughs> right? But I'm just saying, you know, like the bots part of the conversation comes out of the development of advertising. And then what's interesting about the bot part of the conversation in my world is that for a couple of years, there was so much focus on bots that it became a joke. And um, anytime people were interacting with uh, content online, another person would say, well, you're just a bot. And then that person would write on a post-it note, like not a bot and take a picture of themselves to prove that they weren't a bot. And it became this kind of inside, uh, 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 inside joke in a way. But when we think about automation on these platforms, what we're really trying to understand is the degree to which it is easy to register fake accounts and to pretend 
to be much bigger than you than you are. And it's important that we understand the bot conversation in context, though, because when you go to a, um, a Facebook page and, you, you know, say you're interested in some new advocacy topic and, you, and it says chat with us and you start chatting and you're like, man, this, this might be this must be a great nonprofit. They responded right away. It's a bot. Uh, when you interact with the airline <laughs> and you're like, oh, I didn't get my seat and this is unfair. They're like, oh, we're sorry to hear your complaint. Why don't you send me your ticket number? That's a bot. They're everywhere. They're ubiquitous. And which, which means is that the legislation, it shouldn't be about bots, right? It should be about like how people are using the technology and how bad actors have been able to leverage the extra um the extra inputs that bots give them or the extra engagement in order to manipulate search engines, in order to manipulate trends and to manipulate recommendation systems. You're really helping us understand these campaigns and even bots. I think Johanna's always talking about bots. And I think hopefully you've, you've got the answer now that you've always been waiting for about what exactly they are. And But I want to roll us back a little bit to kind of the inception of misinformation. If somebody wants something to go viral, a piece of misinformation, what do they do? It's a good question. So part of it is luck. But we think about this in terms of adversarial media movement. So there are groups of people online who, you know, have a day job, but 95% of their day job, they're plugged into the same computer screen and they're looking on their Facebook and they're liking this and they're doing that. And a lot of them are participating either in message boards or in Facebook groups that are places where links will be dropped and they know what to do. Uh, especially if you think about uh, an online news organization like Breitbart that enjoys an incredible amount of reach online. They are like a media movement. That is the people who are uh, the readers know that their political action or their like political participation is sharing this information. And a lot of you'll see even in the headlines, you know, the headlines will say things like what they don't want you to know about coronavirus or or five facts about coronavirus that the government doesn't want to tell you. And it's those kind of clickbaity headlines that make people feel like, well, I'm going to share this. I'm going to share this and I'm going to share that. And and even within um, and one of the things we experience, of course, in this in this field is an asymmetry between the kind of sharing that happens on the left and in center left versus the kind of sharing that happens on the right. And on the right, people understand themselves as conservatives first, even the news. So in the news, it's party over everything else. And as a result, what happens online is that people know that they're supposed to share that information. Once it gets into this group that they're part of, they know that their job is to post it to their page or to post it in other groups that they're part of or to move it over to Tumblr or to move it over to um, Twitter or to move it over to another forum like CloudHub or what have you. And so we see these hubs like these message boards and these Facebook groups become central distribution mechanisms. And, you know, Kevin Roos has done a few different articles on this in the New York Times about how the conservative media ecosystem just sort of knows to share. Whereas on the left, you have a whole tradition of content creators and indie media that have been in some ways held back by the notions of clicktivism or slacktivism. So if all you're doing is sharing an article, are you really here for the cause? And of course, on in the conservative news ecosystem, there is no downstream engagement with public protest, right? Until very recently, of course. And so you see the inexperiences, the asymmetries, because there are different cultures of sharing online, different political cultures of sharing. And so one thing I've tried to get 
center and left and right wing media, all, all of the people that'll talk to me about it to understand is that the platform is not the distribution mechanism. The platform is the means by which you reach your audience. And then your audience is your distribution mechanism. But folks like Breitbart, uh, particularly and Andrew Breitbart before he passed and Steve Bannon, who took over later, understood that from the get. And mm. that's why we see this asymmetry. So you think it was Steve Bannon, not President Trump, who was the real mastermind? Because I, honestly, you know, I think a lot of people will discount President Trump and his um, ability to manipulate the system. But he really gained a following, unlike any traditional cable news network. He used loopholes to manipulate the system. I guess the question is, who was behind that and how did they know to use the tactics that they used? So this is we're going further down the rabbit hole, ladies, than I think you want to go. Um, it's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's a dark web. It is a, it is a dark a web. Hole. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, and I, I make this joke all the time. There's no such thing as the dark web because actually all of this stuff does play out in front of us. We just have to it's look true. for the patterns. And as a sociologist, one of the things that I've become obsessed with, especially as I'm writing this book um, uh, with my co-authors, Emily Dreyfus and, and Brian Friedberg on meme wars, is that Bannon and Breitbart were students of Occupy. They did a, a documentary called Occupy Unmasked. And most of us remember the history of Occupy as this amazing uh, movement of weirdos that like are willing to live in the public parks and they're like, you know, they've got iPhones and laptops and they're doing marches and they're getting arrested. But Bannon and Breitbart in their documentary Occupy Unmasked locate the birth of Occupy as the moment when Occupy, or someone from Occupy, I should say, posted on social media that Radiohead would be playing in Zuccotti Park at 4 p.m. And it was that hoax that brought tens of thousands of people out to Zuccotti Park that afternoon and made people aware of the movement. And of course, Radiohead had to respond by saying, hey guys, support the movement, but we're totally not playing in Zuccotti Park this afternoon. Thanks for trying. And we didn't understand that kind of level of, um, let's say, digital shenanigans at that point um, that was going to become this fake news charade coupled with uh, the role that Breitbart has played over the years in terms of um, network harassment of journalists, of course, Gamergate and, and um, the reporter Milo Yiannopoulos used to be part of Breitbart. Uh, Breitbart, when he was alive, understood that you do not get legislation and you do not get media hype and spectacle without a street movement. And so when Bannon is creating and crafting the uh, campaign strategy for Trump, he is also at the same time fomenting and bringing together this notion of the alt-right, which then we become, uh, as a society, rightly uh, obsessed with in in many ways because it is such a dangerous and and scary thing to see ardent white supremacists being taken seriously by our news agencies um, and at the same time organizing in public for um, incredible violence like incredible in terms of like just the visceralness of it um, and so Bannon yes like mastermind no um, just kind of understood the mechanics around how social media, because of its openness and because it's all it does is scale things, uh, he kind of used it like a boombox, right? In the sense that he knew he could turn up the volume of disinformation and by doing so, he could call new and different people into action. And with someone like Trump, Bannon has often described him as a blunt tool which is to say that Trump knows the media inside and out. Trump knows spectacle. And so as Trump grew in popularity by saying, you know, bad things in public, he knew what he was, he was doing. I'll tell you one story that really alarmed me was I was sitting on um, a neo-Nazi message board the day that Trump announced his campaign. And in that speech to announce his campaign was the infamous one about uh, Mexicans and the border being criminals. 
And on this neo-Nazi message board, they all start saying, well, that's it. He's never going to win. They're going to make him apologize. And, you know, it's over because they liked his strong stance on immigration. They loved the fact that he was willing to talk about uh, other races in a very pejorative manner. They were behind him, but they thought, well, he's just been too open now. And, you know, the libs are going to come for him. Three days later, they were all shocked that he had doubled down. He didn't apologize. And then they started talking about, well, we should meet each other. We should meet up at the next Trump rally. We should let this happen. Don't get out in front of this and say these are white nationalist talking points. We don't, it's already on the agenda. Don't call attention to this. And, you know, I, I actually changed my entire research program and what I, what I was studying at that point to make sure that I was able to see this and, and understand it for what it was. And I've dedicated the last um, almost six years of my life now to following this uh, and marking these transformations. And right now, uh, luckily, we have a policy window where we may get better legislation than we have for handling the, the information emergency that's in front of us. You just predicted our next question, which was, you know, we know that policymakers look to you and folks like yourself to understand, you know, how to regulate the system, which is in dire need of it. And so what is, if you were leading the regulatory function of social media and disinformation, how would you lead it? What would be your advice? Well, you know, I, there's been a lot of talk about calling this an attention economy. And I think that that is not the way we should be talking about it because it gives over too much um, agency to the individual. Uh, usually attention economy arguments end in, well, it's your choice, shut it off. I'm sorry, I'm a professor that studies the internet. I don't have that option. The people are, you know, Julia Tacona's got great research on the digital hustle. There are many, many, many people cannot shut the internet off. It is part of their lives. It's part of our economy. It's part of the way in which we keep in touch with our friends and family. The, the worst thing we could do is say, all of this cool stuff that we've built, the best thing you can do is turn it off right? Because that's not where we should be as a society. The best thing we can do is rein it in. The best thing we can do is put community safety at the center of design to ensure that when people are getting harassed, when there's um, incitements to violence, when there's hate and disinformation, that the companies take a strong stance on it and, and get rid of it and say, you know, of course we want a free and open information commons, but you don't get to like show up to McDonald's at 2 a.m. and just start popping off on your opinions about George Bush or Obama or whoever. Like people are gonna be like, are you ordering or not, right? And that's where we're at now with some of this. And I think, you know, regulatory wise, now, you know, I'm just an unfrozen cave woman sociologist, okay? I don't know much about the law. Um, you know, I I don't, I, you know, it's a joke from Saturday Night Live from the 80s, the unfrozen caveman lawyer, right? And he would, he would get up on, you know, and he'd be in the, you know, he'd say, I'm just an unfrozen caveman lawyer. I don't know anything about the law. But it's to, you know, set up this idea that um, I can make a moral argument, which would be to say that, for every piece of disinformation that is loaded into social media news feeds and timelines, we should have an anchor for timely, local, relevant, and accurate information. So I would love for us to open up what are called public interest obligations on the web, uh, especially around social media websites. So maybe every 25, 30 scrolls through, you get a little block of information that has some local journalism. It tells you the weather. It tells you if there's a city council meeting. It tells you if you have to vote today. Um, you know, all of these things that we've uh, insisted that radio do. Uh, so like if you turn on the radio and you know, you got your 94.5 and they're like, that was uh, the, new, the new song from Rihanna. And tonight we have a city council meeting and there's a snow emergency. Those, little snippets of information we experience them as part of the like part of the way radio works they don't want to do that 
that interrupts your flow, right? <laughs> like, it, there's no DJ that would want to turn off the speakers and be like, okay, guys, you know, the club is, uh, you know, going to be washing <laughs> the floors in 20 minutes, right? Like you just don't want to stop the party. And so we need to address public interest obligations and we need to bring about um, a public interest internet that doesn't just function on virality and popularity, which are eminently gameable systems. I, if I were industrious and wanted to be rich, I would just flip the switch and go into, you know, these like slick media marketing campaigns that like just lie to you about everything because right now that's where the money is. And so in the money in disinformation, the money in media manipulation, the money in hoaxes and grifts is just too good. And so in, in addition to public interest obligations, we have to disincentivize uh, this emerging industry. And if we don't, then really smart people will start to rationalize. Uh, I'm not media manipulating, I'm search engine optimizing, right? And we don't want to get there as a society where this becomes a kind of job people have, because there are other countries where that is true, where in the Philippines, people just do this for a living. Uh, and, and in the US, there are people who do this for a living, but more and more of them are being outed and called to account. And so we actually need Congress to care deeply about the future of our information commons and we have to get them to do something about it. And so you bring up such good points about how regulators and how legislators can step in, but how can individuals, how can our listeners protect themselves from disinformation? Are there websites? Are there ways that they can know that the information that they're ingesting is accurate? Not really. Oh. And I say this because... Um, Every, every attempt to fact check, especially on super controversial issues, the answer is going to lie outside of the internet, usually. If you want to know the news, buy a newspaper. It is much harder to hoax the New York Times and the Washington Post than you would imagine. It's not impossible, but they have a process for that, which are retractions and corrections. Um, but what, which is all to say that if things are being served to you on social media and you can't figure out the origin and you look at the byline of the reporter, or you've never seen that website before, it's good to be suspicious. Uh, I know that TikTok, you know, don't be suspicious, right? You want to be <laughs> suspicious of everything. Uh, and you want to try to figure out if that domain is real. Um, you know, because we've seen you know, unfortunately, in every breaking news situation now is an opportunity for disinformers to plant a lie. And usually the more outrageous the lie is, the more sticky it is. That is, it gets inside your brain and it becomes hard for you to even correct that information. You know, I'll give you one very sticky example that we're all very familiar with. Vaccines cause autism is a meme. And no matter how many times you hear facts about vaccines or autism, your brain is going to be triggered into thinking that turn of phrase because it's short, it's pithy, it's sticky, it's memorable. And no matter how hard we try to get rid of it, it still stays. And we're going to be this whole generation of people who are going to have this uh, meme stuck with us. And so... I say that all to suggest that as you start to think about quality and accuracy of information, make a habit of flipping on the local news at night and just watch. They'll give you a little bit of national. They'll give you a little bit of sports. They'll put things in a perspective for you so that it's not so terribly overwhelming. The hardest part of being in a rabbit hole about a specific piece of information is once you've searched for it, the algorithms, which are literally called reinforcement algorithms, will try to show you that content over and over and over again. And this is why people get sucked into things like QAnon is because it's a very unique keyword. You search for it once and then the platform does the work. It keeps trying to bring you back in to that, especially if you've clicked on a few things and watched it, even to figure out that you don't like it. And I know this because even with my computer, um, my work computer thinks I'm a white supremacist. So I'll go on Amazon 
and it will be recommending me World War II documentaries because I've been watching some terrible stuff on YouTube. And I don't want that to be everywhere all over my web experience, but for my work computer, that's my experience. And so we need to have better and newer ways too of signaling accurate and local content with better, um, you know, check marks and, and more clarity of context. Um, you know, there was a bitter war just getting uh, Twitter to uh, include a line that said someone was a congressman or was a, a member of Congress next to their account name because they didn't want that added information. It looks bad, right? But so many people have been impersonating members of Congress that you now needed a different kind of verification that went even above the blue check mark. And I say that all to suggest that some of this stuff is eminently fixable, but the will has to be there. And the will from the companies, as far as I saw in that tech hearing um, not too long ago, right. isn't there. Well, in closing, one thing that I'd argue folks can do to protect themselves is to follow people like you and your work and to follow the different stories that you highlight on social media. So I'd love if you could share with our audience where they can find more about you and the research that you're doing. Yeah, so you can follow me at Boston Joan on Twitter, and then I am sometimes known to show up on Clubhouse from here, there, and everywhere. You can also follow many of the people on my research team uh, or the Schwarenstein Center. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't, you know, completely pan journalism. Uh, Brandy Zadronsny is an incredible journalist from NBC, April Glazier, Ben Collins, Olivia Salon, all over at NBC are fantastic. Davy Alba at the New York Times, Liz Dawoski and Craig Timberg at the Washington Post. Jane uh, Levchenko and Craig Silverman at BuzzFeed. Uh, Craig Silverman, I call them Grant. I call him Grandpa Silverman. He's been doing this longer <laughs> than any of us. Uh, he breaks some of the best stories, especially with Ryan Mack around leaks inside these companies, because ultimately these companies have created such a toxic work environment that it's time to get out the popcorn and watch it collapse because there's really not much we're going to be able to do until the leaders of these companies step up. This has been such a fascinating conversation. Honestly, an hour just sped by. And thank you so much, Joan, for joining us today. Again, Dr. Joan Donovan from the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard. Thanks. I mean, I think this is such an important conversation and an important conversation is going to continue. And she had fantastic ideas on how to regulate this system. And I hope that folks in Washington are listening. Well, there's so much information shared and I love that she was able to do it in at least a way for me that was so digestible. So I appreciate all that we learned in talking with her. Absolutely. It's rare you have someone break everything down like that, because I almost feel like there's disinformation about disinformation. That's right. <laughs> so yes. that was very helpful. I'm probably going to listen to this interview twice. Well, as we talk about continuing to get accurate information, I want to go right over to our POTUS. And this week, it's CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Wilinski, and she is giving an impassioned plea for Americans to stay vigilant and continue taking precautions against COVID, given the rise of cases as of late. Today, she signed an extension to the moratorium on evictions, which prevents the eviction of tenants who are unable to make their rental payments through June of this year. So we just we want people to continue to wear their masks and continue to do all that you need to do to keep yourselves from getting coronavirus that is still very real and still out there. Well, and our shout out this week goes to Beverly Cleary, uh, who is an author and truly a legend. I know I had started reading uh, the Ramona series with my son because my mom had sent me my original copy, which had been my aunt's uh, Ramona the Pest, and my son falls to sleep listening to Beverly Cleary's books every night. So she made it more than 100 years. Her legend will live on with her books, and I'm really grateful that Beverly Cleary wrote such wonderfully connecting books. And to 
Dr. Joan Donovan's point about the misinformation around vaccines, we want to dive in deeper and talk to an expert. So we're having Dr. Kavita Patel join us next week for a conversation about, you know, as we move into this next phase of vaccine distribution, what we need to know. So we hope you'll tune in for that. And as always, Pod is a Woman is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. See you all next week.